This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 660. And the quote of the day is, you learn something new every day if you pay attention. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 660 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And the interesting thing about hosting this podcast is that all of the, like, I always tell people, I've listened to every single one of these episodes, right? Because I was there when they were recorded and and, uh, had these conversations. But I'm the same way that you are, that I don't remember everything. So I go back and listen to old episodes. I listen to it all the time. I may not listen to a whole episode, but I may go back to listen for a specific thing that I knew that I talked to someone about, or I may want to go back and just, just re-listen to something because I remember how good it was or something. And this episode with Gavin Harrison is an episode that I recorded back in August of 2016. So five years ago. And there's so much great stuff. I mean, it's Gavin Harrison. There's so much great stuff in here. And particularly the stuff about how he learns music and and thoughts on reading music and then and how he um how he practices and things like that. There was so much value in here. And as I'm going back listening to it, I'm like, man, I should bring this up to the top again. So that's what I did. Uh so this is an episode, like I said, that was recorded back in August of 2016 with the great Gavin Harrison. And you, I always say this, but you may want to just grab a notepad because there's some, some great info in here from a legend and I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with Gavin Harrison. Gavin Harrison, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So for, uh, I'm guessing that there is not anyone who, uh, who doesn't know who you are that's, that's listening, but just to build a little bit of, of backstory, can you sort of just give a little bit of insight on, on really growing up, like how you got in, how you got into playing and how you got the drumming bug, so to speak? Uh, yeah, well, my father was uh, a jazz trumpet player and he played a little bit of drums too. Uh, I tried to play trumpet as both of my brothers did as well, and I was probably the worst of the three of us. <laughs> but I loved music, and um, I was very good at dancing. I was in dance school at age six. And um, I don't know, something about the drums attracted me. I really liked music. I liked rhythm, and it felt, I wouldn't say it felt easy, but it felt natural because I was well-coordinated. I was you know, good at playing football and other sports. So it, the, the challenge of doing different things with different limbs didn't feel as hard as trying to play the trumpet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was, I was about age six when that started. And my dad showed me a few things. I used to play along to his jazz record collection and uh, just have a lot of fun really. And, uh, when I got to about 10, 11 years old, he found uh, a teacher in London called Joe Hodson. And um, he kind of taught me to read and taught me to hold the sticks properly. He was quite a progressive thinker. He you know, immediately wanted me to play uh, match grip, 
which uh, he didn't, and no one of his generation did. Hmm. And he wanted me to play left-hand lead as well. He'd seen Billy Cobham and thought, this is the future. Right. So although Joe himself was quite old-fashioned, he was quite a modern thinker. And so he, he, he would have me, you know, listen to certain records and, uh, you know, absorb more modern ideas, even though he didn't express that in the way he played the drums. Mm. So a question to go back a little bit about the dancing. What, uh, what type of dancing was it? Was it sort of like ballroom dancing or, or, or was it tap dancing? Uh, well, it was a bit of tap dancing. It was a bit of ballet, actually. Okay. It was the only dance school in my area that was taking kids on. And I found it very easy. And they immediately got very excited because not well, hardly any boys go to that kind of thing. Right. Right. And, and, and um, the reason, well, the reason why I asked about that, because there's a lot of correlation between tap dancing and brush playing. Sure. And I, I know there's, there's lots of drummers who started off as dancers, mm-hmm. uh, but I, pre- I pretty quickly gave it up when I was about seven. Okay. Okay. So do you think that that, that helped you sort of make the transition into playing though? No, no, not at all. No, yeah. I, I had I had an, a feeling like I wanted to express myself, and dance wasn't it. I thought dance might be it, but um, it felt more like the drums were where I was heading. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so now, with your your lessons, you had mentioned that you know he your instructor wanted you to play open hand, wanted you to play uh, left hand lead, wanted you to mm-hmm. play. Match grip, and we've had this conversation on the podcast numerous times about traditional grip, match grip, uh, the pros and cons, sort of, and how you know traditional grip is not really a not really a ergonomically uh, good way of playing. And it was that part of the reason why he wanted you to play match grip. No, I think he 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 had seen uh, Billy Cobham play and thought that's the way to go. And if you can get the hi hat at about the same hi hat. A same height as the snare drum, your hands were just, it's going to feel really natural. You're not going to be crossing your hands and everything's going to feel, you know, kind of economic in its movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've never really played traditional grip. And um, a lot of people I know play traditional grip, especially kind of my age or older, are all having terrible pains in their left thumb. Right. And um, it, it just doesn't make sense to to me personally. The way I play, does it, it wouldn't make any sense to play uh, traditional grip. Mm-hmm. I play traditional grip if I play brushes. I might play traditional grip for a few bars while I'm playing some light swing. Other than that, you know, I, I realize where the grip's coming from, from marching. And playing a drum set is nothing like, you know, walking on a parade ground with a marching drum. Right. Slung over your arm and, and yeah, so over your shoulder and sideways. And it was the only way you could probably play it a hundred years ago. Sure. You know, the snare drum would have been mounted kind of on your left leg pointing down. And that's the natural place to do the left hand traditional grip. Now, nothing I do is related to that. My drum set isn't set up that way. Um, so personally, I find it a lot easier to just play match grip and kind of my right hand teaches my left hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, I've got a much better right hand than I have left hand, as is true with most people. 
So uh, I, try, I, I notice things that the right hand does, and then I try to copy that with the left hand and think, why, doesn't, why can't I do that as easily? So it gives me something to aim for, you know. Mm-hmm. And to your point, uh, I, I had Thomas Lang on the podcast, and he said that he went through ridiculous amounts of pain. And he said in some of the older videos, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know it, but both of his hands were numb. And he had to get surgery on both of his hands. And, uh, what, you know, a lot of it was playing traditional grip in his left hand. Don Famolaro switched. Jojo Mayer had expressed co- some concerns about traditional. Uh, so it's I, I guess it, it's a time honored tradition, but maybe maybe not the best way to be playing if you're going to be playing, you know, a kit sitting down and, and not standing up and marching. Yeah. And especially now that we tend to play louder than two or three generations before us uh, who may have even been on calf skins, mm-hmm. but you know, the kind of volume guys of my dad's age were playing, you know, unmiked in a band, in a dance band with three trumpets and trombones and a singer, the singer would have a microphone. No one else would have a mic. Right. You just balanced your volume. And so from a drum point of view, you would play what I would consider now to be pretty quiet mm-hmm. the sort of volume that you play in a rock and roll concert is just insane and it you know if you played at that sort of volume in a dance band you'd you'd just deafen everyone and last about three seconds <laughs> but, that's, a, that's a quick way to get fired but you know that's the way drumming has gone that's the way you know we tend to play louder than we did before it, it's interesting i actually had a an interesting insight I was at uh, Drum Channel one day, and I stood outside having a conversation with Steve Smith and Jojo Mayer and Dave Weckle, and those three guys were all saying how much their left thumb was hurting. Hmm. And I said, well, just play match grip. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's quite simple. you know. And those three guys are all, at that time, uh, I didn't know Jojo had switched, but at that time, those guys all had fantastic grip technique. Right. Left hand technique. I just didn't grow up doing that thing. Well, so did I know that Jojo or the conversation that we had, I know that he was having some issues and was either switching back and forth or experimenting a lot more with playing match. I don't know if he's made the the transition completely. And, you know, when I look at somebody like Jojo Mayer, I think that he has impeccable technique and has worked on that for, you know, for years and years. And I figure if he's having issues and he's having, you know, some thumb pain and guys like Dave Weckl, you know, and Steve Smith, I think that it's, uh, I, I don't think that I'll ever get to the point where, where I have better technique than any of them. So I may just want to stick with Matt. Yeah, right. <laughs> so talk a little bit about sort of, I know that you said that, that your father was a, as a musician and you grew up sort of <clears throat> listening to jazz, playing jazz records. What was that sort of your mode of, of practice or was there a more sort of diligent by the book practice routine that you went through? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I just played along with records till I was about 11. And when I started having lessons, Joe taught me to read and he taught me to play actually German grip, um, match grip. And, um, I pretty much hated the lessons with Joe. They were quite strict and, uh, I couldn't see any fun in them. (laughs) um learning to read you know i I could already play quite well shall we say for an 11 year old at that time 
um, I, I felt like I could play, you know, to most of my dad's record collection. Um, and it wasn't, um, it, I, I don't know, it didn't feel like the things Joe was showing me had any relevance on how I played when I was having fun. Mm -hmm. It was only much later that I actually found the value in having learnt to read and have a reasonably good grip. Right. I got to 16 and I left school and started working professionally. Being able to read was a good thing back then. And mm -hmm. it has been ever since. Mm -hmm. And being able to write things out, being able to perceive things and understand more complicated time structures and syncopations and kind of really knowing where all the beats were helped by having a, a visualization of, of seeing it written down. Sure. And especially for you, for the type of bands that you play in and the type of music that you play, that understanding some of those more complicated rhythms, being able to structure them out, being able to visualize them, I can imagine has been uh, profoundly uh, beneficial for you. Yeah, it would make me wonder how guys who don't read play really complicated music. They've either got to have the most incredibly fast ears or they're going to have to listen and practice to it thousands of times to learn it. Right. I don't, I mean, I learned songs. I mean, let's say King Crimson, I write out the piece and we practice it, we rehearse it. And kind of in my mind, I can still, at least for the first 20, 30 shows, I can still see what the part looks like from a sort of photographic memory point of view. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to go on stage with a band like King Crimson or Porcupine Tree and have a music stand and a load of charts there. Right. That doesn't feel right. So <laughs> um, I do learn the songs, but learning them in, in the first instance, I, I, I need to write them out usually. It depends how, how tough the song is. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a bit of a of a reinforcement technique too because I know that they you know if you're if you're reading a book and then you you write parts of the book out into notes and then you read over those notes and things like that you're just reinforcing this thing so like you said you're listening to it but you're also charting it out now you have a visual representation you've written it out you've listened to it and it, that has to uh, exponentially speed up the process of of learning all these tunes whether it's a just a, a simple rock tune or something more complicated that's all polyrhythmic and things like that. Yeah, plus from a personal pride point of view, I didn't want to turn up to the first rehearsal and just be floundering. Of course. <laughs> I, like, I like to get to the first rehearsal and be able to play the song pretty much without any mistakes straight away. So now what's the advice for people who are, are listening now that are sort of not seeing the fruits of their labor yet in, in learning how to read and learning how to chart and, and, you know, putting the time in to do that. Yeah. I, well, I don't know. I mean, there's plenty of success, successful musicians who don't read. Uh, I guess they all find their own way of understanding how, where the notes are or where the accents are. Um, it just felt much more organized and easy for me. I don't think, you know, learning, learning the basis of reading isn't that difficult. I don't think you need to get to the point necessarily where you can sight read a Buddy Rich chart where you just turn up at a gig and someone counts you in and off you go. 
Mm-hmm. And I've done that too. And um, I, I don't think my reading is, my sight reading is that good anymore because I hardly ever, ever get put in that position anymore. But being able to write things out and understand them is the point where I might feel, you know, someone who doesn't read might miss out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm quite rhythmically curious. So I might play a rhythm and think, oh, this is cool. Wonder what this would sound like if I played it in triplets. Now, I might try to play it in triplets and it falls apart. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I might write it out, say it was in 16th. I might write it out in triplets and then see how it looks in triplets so I can perceive it. Uh, or I might decide, well, maybe this would be cool if it was three sixteenth notes earlier than how I'm playing it at the moment. And then I could write it three sixteenth notes earlier and see how that sounded. Mm-hmm. When you first try to play it in that new position, it's quite bizarre. Sure. And it sounds like a completely different rhythm. And just the having the ability to manipulate an idea if you have a, a you know a new idea that comes to you from improvising and you think oh this is cool you've got some tools which you could extrapolate different versions nearly everything that i come up with on the drums is an accident that's happened during an improvisation and i might play something and think oh hang on this is sounding like something i haven't played before this is sounding something interesting so at that point, I try to either write it down, or if it's a bit too hard, I might even film myself playing it on a little Zoom. Then I might write it out. Then I might think, well, this might be cool if it was in seven. So let's write it out in seven, or let's write it out a 16th note late, or let's write it out in triplets. It's looking good in triplets, but now I want it to start, this rhythm, I want it to start on the second triplet, not the first one. And I can do all those manipulations just with a pencil and a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. It'd be almost impossible to do them just in your head. Right. And so what I'm getting from this is that you may not necessarily need to be the best sight reader in the world or even the best charter in the world, but having some sort of working vocabulary and a system that works for you to at least get the ideas out of your head or get whatever you're hearing onto paper so that you can refer back to them and sort of create a, 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 a roadmap to explore different ideas. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I can look back at charts I wrote 25 years ago and read them. I can read charts that people pay me. I can look at stuff in people's books and understand it. I can see a, a, you know, a magazine article and just sit there and hear it in my head as I'm looking at it on sitting on a train. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I think at some point, you're going to start, if you don't read, you're going to start working out a system. And interestingly enough, Pat Mastelotto has a system because he doesn't read. And I said to him, how do you learn all these polyrhythmic, weird, hard King Crimson things? And he writes out a quite bizarre length of uh, squares, triangles, and numbers. Hmm. And um, <laughs> you're thinking you might as well just learn how to read. <laughs> well, that's what I said to him. I said, Pat, you've put so much work into this because, you know, if he's going to play a rhythm in seven, which is two twos and a three, he'll write a square, a square and a triangle. A square means two and a triangle means three. 
So he knows it's going to go. And I said, Pat, you know, you're not that far off from actually writing it out properly. And what it means is that if you did understand the uh, internationally accepted way to notate rhythm, <laughs> you could be in a band with some guys who don't even speak English, and you could say to them, look, here's, here's a chart. Can you play this rhythm for me? Right. Or you could show me some of your ideas, or I could show you a, a, a rhythmic idea, and you could just understand it straight away because it's written in a in a common language. Mm -hmm. um, what, was gonna, what was his response to that? He said, "Yeah, you're right. <laughs> if you're going to start working on quite complex structures, you're going to have to figure out some sort of system." And you know, some guys have already figured out this system called notation that's been knocking around for hundreds of years. And pretty much goes worldwide. Musicians all around the world can can understand it and play it. Right. So why not use that? <laughs> Maybe you've convinced them to to learn how to do it. Oh well, you know, um, Pat's a, a, a fantastic learner, and we spend lots of time sitting in dressing rooms and uh, you know sitting there with pads and trying out ideas and. He, he's not someone who's just sort of thinks, "Oh, I'm too old." You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think if I if uh, if he felt like it, I I could probably teach him notation over the, over the series of about six weeks. Sure, especially a player at that level who already has his own system, who really understands. He's basically already he understands everything rhythmically yeah. already. It's just a, ma a different way of of uh, really notating it. Exactly. So it's interesting that you brought Pat up because I wanted to ask you about King Crimson and how you approach playing with, you know, by yourself versus playing with a drummer. And is that a totally different approach for you and, and how you sort of tackled that? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, in King Crimson, there's three drummers. Right. So, you know, you've got to be pretty well choreographed most of the time. And if you're not choreographed down to the note, you need to be choreographed down to the point where you know roughly what the other two are doing sonically or subdivision wise or what they're going to be playing. They don't have to play note for note, but you know, if Pat's going to play sort of tribal toms and I'm playing hi-hat, we don't necessarily always have to play exactly the same hi-hat rhythm. It doesn't always have to play exactly the same tribal tom rhythm, but we just know that that works. Mm -hmm. Um, more difficult is trying to not play two bass drums or three bass drums or two or three snare drums at the same time. So we carefully design the pieces so there's we avoid all trying to play the downbeat with the bass drum or all trying to play the snare drum in the backbeat position, wherever that may be, at the same time. Although that in itself is a sound, that we didn't really want to do the unison thing where we all just chug away at the same rhythm. Mm -hmm. We thought like the it, James Brown thing or yeah, where you just basically two drummers, three drummers, all playing the same thing. Right. Uh, no matter how tight you are, there'll always be small flams going on. And that can be a sound as well. If you like that sort of thing, there's very little of the show, uh, the King Crimson show that we actually play in unison, almost none of it. Um, so it's an interesting challenge. 
Um, it's completely different to playing on your own. You do have to remember. And the hardest thing really is not playing. Sure. Playing the hi-hat and hitting a crash cymbal without a bass drum with a crash cymbal is a really hard thing to do. You're <laughs> so programmed to play a fill and hit a crash on the end with a bass drum. Now, if someone else is playing the bass drum as the one to the next bar, it's really hard to remember to not hit the bass drum. Right. Yeah, so, I didn't even think about. I mean, I, I've noticed that before of like just try, just trying to hit a hit a bass or hit a cymbal without hitting the bass drum is really. It's just, it's a hard thing to do because, like you said, we're so programmed to do it. Yeah. So uh, now you would mention that that it's choreographed, or is it, is it literally note for note choreographed, or just basically everyone is playing their parts and sort of moving through their parts? Well, some of it is note for note. Some of it is kind of um i don't know what you call it sort of dynamic mm -hmm. in that uh you know some pieces we play a bit like a, a, a drum machine that's got six arms and six legs so i might be playing a tom pattern and a snare drum that's kind of interlocked in between what pat is doing i'll have written a uh, a tom and snare drum part for pat a Tom and snare drum part for me, which we never play on the same part. And then the third drummer would play 16ths on the hi-hat with some open notes. Mm. Um, when that was Bill Riflin, you know, I just said to him, just play like drum machine hi-hat. Not dynamic, just play all the notes at the same volume on the edge. Let's try and make this sound like a drum machine, just for fun. And randomly open the hi-hat wherever you like. So that would be a sort of semi-designed thing. Sometimes there's parts where, um, you know, we just, it's a more sonic thing. So one drummer's going to play snare drum with ghost notes and rolls and accents. Another guy's going to play, you know, the hi-hat and the bell of the ride. And then the other guy's going to play the bass drum and one tom. But the parts are not specified. Mm, okay. you just do do whatever you want but don't move away from those sounds sure sure there's other times where we will play in unison for a couple of bars and then we will split into three like pat will play let's say it's a song like vroom where all three of us are playing one and three on the bass drum two and four on the snare drum eights on the hi-hat and then at a certain point uh, Pat will continue playing that rhythm. Bill will play his rhythm one eighth note later. So his bass drum will be on one and, the snare drum will be on two and, you see what I mean? And then I will play the same rhythm one sixteenth later, including the hi hat. Mm. So my, my, hi, my whole rhythm is a sixteenth note out. And that will give you. Pat's bass drum, followed by my bass drum, followed by Bill's bass drum, followed by Pat's snare drum, my snare drum, and Bill's snare drum. So it'll go boom, 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 ba 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 right? And the hi-hats will turn into sixteenths. Pat and Bill are playing eights, and I'm playing in between them, off sixteenths. Now, later on in the song, Pat stays in the, in the straight position. Bill goes one eighth note back and i go three sixteenth notes forward Jeez. 
and that has a different sound. Right. And then then we do another couple of these uh, displacement three-way displacement things. Um, it was a nice way to use the three drummers in a creative way. And it's great. You w- watch people in the front row when we just when we go into it, it really kind of blows their minds. What, and what, what tune is that? That's a song called Vroom. Yeah. Uh, so how, I, how, how are you concentrating and how are you hearing that sort of thing? Because I think that whether this is with two other drummers or whether it's with other instrumentalists who, you know, and you're displacing the beat yourself is what's your secret to sort of hearing, hearing it the way that you need to hear it so that you're not jumping on what they're playing or you're not, uh, you know, you're not messing things up or or hearing things a different way. Well, I think the first secret is that the rest of the band know you're going to do it. If they don't know you're going to do it, you will completely throw them. Right. But if you're in a band, a progressive band, and you say, right, in this section, I'm going to play a displacement. So be ready, keep your head down, and don't lose the beat. And I go at it the same way. I, If I'm going to play a 16th note off, I don't <laughs> play a bar of 1716 and then start a new one. My one is always in the same position as it always was, and is with the rest of the band. I'm just hearing it as a new syncopated offbeat rhythm. Mm, I see what you're saying. I never, you know, elude myself in this thing. I never, you know, it is a rhythmic illusion. When you suddenly hear a bass drum and snare drum and bass drum and snare drum, which are equidistant, boom, bath, boom, bath, your brain naturally organizes that to be one, two, three, four, right? Because uh-huh, uh-huh. that's, that's what we've been doing our whole lives. But when you um, hear a rhythm where the, there are equidistant bass drum and snare drums, but they're not on the beat, they're off the beat, your brain starts thinking, hang on, I'm in the wrong place here your mind will try to turn you around and make the bass drum and snare drum the one, two, three, four, mm-hmm. regardless of where it starts. And that's the fun of an illusion. You understand what the audience are expecting. And when you present it in a, in a new light or in a new position, you're messing with their mind. You're messing with their perception of rhythm. And that's what's the fun part of making a rhythmic illusion. Um, I mean, it hasn't always got to be as obvious as just playing boom, bath, boom, bath in a new position. You can take more syncopated rhythms, which, uh, when they become displaced, just sound like new rhythms. They don't especially sound like he's moved the downbeat. Mm -hmm. And this, I mean, I got fascinated with this in the 80s and the 90s, and I wrote a book called Rhythmic Illusions and another book called Rhythmic Perspectives. And you can use displacement and metric modulation, which makes it sound like you've changed the tempo, where actually you haven't. Um, you can use these quite creatively, especially if you're playing you know, in a progressive band or you're in a situation with three drummers. We, do a, we use displacement and modulation a lot in King Crimson. It's quite a creative 
they're quite creative tools, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for your first kit? Or are you a teacher with beginning drum students? The all-new Mapex Venus Series Complete Drum Kit presents an all-inclusive setup for the first-time player ready to start that Drummer for Life adventure. Mapex is dedicating to produce exactly what drummers need to succeed at all levels, and Venus starts the young and hungry player with a five-piece shell pack complete with a matching snare drum and outfitted with a complete set of stands and pedals, cymbals, and a drummer's throne, and even their first pair of drumsticks, all at an affordable price. Contact your favorite Mapex retailer to find out more. With Mapex Venus Series, you can start here and arrive anywhere on your adventure to become a drummer for life. So how would you suggest someone maybe picking up a few of your books to learn this sort of thing? Because the metric modulation and beat displacement and all that stuff can have some really amazing effects on your playing if you can really harness it and and learn how to play with it. Mm. I think that for me, when I first understood what that meant, like even something simple like, you know, taking a... A four note grouping in a three note subdivision or something like that and the way that it, how how crazy it can sound uh and where it feels like it's speeding up or slowing down and things like that once i understood it it sort of opened up all these doors for me but i think that getting to that getting to that point and really understanding that uh is is hard is is hard to even start to experiment with that sort of thing yeah it's not a beginner's concept definitely uh, not something you might want to look at after you've been playing a few years if you're rhythmically curious and you know i mean i'd i'd hear records with weird things on that i just never understood and years later i went back and listened to them and and then i realized what was happening um so i mean it's a it's an interesting concept how you use it or how much you do of it is entirely up to you and you know your version of what you think tasteful is mm-hmm. yeah i'm sort of of the of the school that too much of anything is uh is too much you know <laughs> yeah i've certainly heard people really make a big mess of it because they've just been doing it all the time and it's it's been horrendous all right so how did the uh how did the whole king crimson thing come about for you was it a um was it something that sort of was a natural progression. I'm always interested to hear sort of how people got the gig. Oh, well, it was quite simple. Um, about 2006, uh, Robert Fripp came and made, um, he did the opening slot for Porcupine Tree, mm-hmm. just a solo thing doing soundscapes. And he did about, oh, I don't know, 30, 40 gigs with us. Um, he would go out and do 20, 30 minutes as the opening act. And we got to know him, and of course he got to see us play every night. And then in 2008, pretty much out of the blue, he called me and he said, um, I'm putting King Crimson back together. I'd like you to be uh, playing drums alongside Pat Nastalotto. And I said, okay, sounds great. And that's sort of how it happened. Hmm. 
there wasn't an audition. I mean, he'd seen me play so many times. Right. I think he knew what I could do. Um, and he's always been pretty good at picking band members. He always gets, he's a good casting agent. (laughs) (laughs) He's always put together interesting collections of musicians who kind of feed off each other or inspire each other. Right. And it creates, um, it creates nice results. So what was the, from Porcupine Tree to King Crimson, was there, what, did you find it more difficult to learn uh, Porcupine Tree tunes versus, versus King Crimson or? Uh, no, King Crimson songs are harder. Um, the difference is at the end of a Porcupine Tree gig, you're physically exhausted. Mm-hmm. Sweating absolutely destroyed at the end of a king crimson gig you might not even get into a sweat but you your brain feels like you've done a month's worth of porcupine tree gigs <laughs> in one night right it's an exceptional amount of uh, brain activity going on mm-hmm. songs are complicated um they are intricate there's lots of uh, things you've got to think about Right. More concentration required. And, a lot more uh, concentration. Right. A lot more concentration. Um, I don't miss the, the physical aspect of drumming. I never really liked getting exhausted, smashing the hell out of the drums. I never enjoyed that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't miss that, that element. Uh, I mean, I'm happy if I can find some interest in the music that really excites me and keeps my enthusiasm for wanting to play it. So with that level of concentration in King Crimson, does it feel like it's it's pulling some of the music, not musicality, but some of the uh, some of the enjoyment out of it to where it almost seems like an equation that you're that you're putting together these pieces or is there still the satisfaction of 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 really uh, playing musically and and having some artistic integrity through it? No, not at all. I, I, I mean, I don't feel like it's too much. I don't feel like it's mathematical. I, I think it's very musical, uh, King Crimson. Uh, it's definitely satisfying uh, to play. I don't think it's something that's just like a total mind-bending, you know, kind of uh, mathematical nightmare. Mm-hmm. It, some people might think that. Some right. people might think the Beatles is that. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. So the uh, you seem like a, I guess a sort of a regimented person. Is that is that how your practice routines have been too? Are you a regimented practicer? And and what advice do you have for practicing? I always like to get my guests to sort of talk about their practice routine because I think everyone's is different, and you can sort of pull things from everybody's practice routine. Well, um. Yeah, I mean, hard work pays off in the future, but laziness pays off straight away. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there's more and more and more and more distractions these days. Even now, as I'm sitting here, I can see there's unanswered emails coming in. There's uh, things on messages on my phone. There's plenty of reasons to take you away from practicing. I guess, luckily, when I was a kid, they, they... most of the distractions didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I don't know about regimented. I think the thing is that even if you have a drum teacher, most of your learning happens when you're on your own, unless you only ever just play when you're in the lesson. Right. <laughs> and I've seen kids like that. But, you know, I would have a lesson once every two weeks, and then I would practice for the rest of the two weeks. Now, the teacher isn't standing next to you, so you start making decisions and finding creative solutions to your problems. Um, and, yeah, if you're not careful, you, you need to have some sort of uh, discipline about it. Otherwise, you know, if you haven't got a, a gig and you haven't got any work, what's the point of getting out of bed? Right. Um, you need to, to, to drive yourself. You're the only person who's going to do it. Um, you're not going to have a teacher come and wake you up at seven in the morning and force you onto the drums. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's like how, how good do you want to be? If you want to be good, you're going to have to practice. Right. Um, I think really the, the value has been in finding creative solutions for my own problems, uh, making up exercises that could highlight areas that I'm struggling with. There's no point just sitting on the drums and, you know, blowing your chops for 20 minutes and then just go and watch TV. You know, you haven't right. learned anything. Right. Depends if you want to learn or you just want to mess around and have a good time. Mm -hmm. And to really learn, you've really got to knuckle down to it and get disciplined. There was a period in the early 90s where I used to rent a rehearsal space and I would go there at 9.30 in the morning and I would do six hours in a room on my own. And interestingly enough, it was a local rehearsal room where nothing happened in the daytime. And the owner said, I, you know, I can't, it wouldn't be of any um, financial value for me to be sitting here in the reception. So I'll let you in and then I'll lock you in. The It was in a basement of an office building. I'll lock you in and then I'll come and unlock you at half past five. <laughs> now, I could get out. There was a fire escape and I could go out. There was a little cafe outside. I used to go out through the fire escape. But basically, I was locked up, solitary confinement for six, seven hours a day. And it was fantastic. And you would do this every day? Oh, yeah. Well, five days a week. Right. But the weekends, the local rehearsal room was always busy. Weekends mm. and evenings. But Monday to Friday, daytime, nothing ever happened down there. So I had the place to myself. I didn't, you know, there was, people didn't have mobile phones back then. There was no internet. Mm -hmm. No one ever came by. It really was like being locked away. Right. And so there was no excuse for me to, you know, oh, I've got some friends coming around. Oh, I'll make a phone call. Oh, I'll check my email. Let's look at Facebook. Let's watch this YouTube clip, you know. Oh, look, five hours has gone by. Right. <laughs> um, there wasn't any excuses. And I think I had to put myself in that position because I'm quite easily distracted. Me too. I think I had to force myself into that position. And really, if, if I wanted to get back to that kind of practice, I just need to turn the computer off and turn my phone off and lock the door. Right. And just get on with it. My st stop finding excuses. Right. Cause, and there's, you'll find them every, any way that you turn, especially nowadays. Like my, the practice space that I have now has Wi Fi and all that stuff, but my old place didn't. Mm -hmm. And I definitely get a lot more done 
I got a lot more done in my old place than I do with my new place. Yeah, well, if practicing is important to you and it has and is to me, then, uh, yeah, you've got to engineer a position where you just try to get rid of as many distractions as possible and really focus on what you want to achieve mm-hmm. um, rather than just, you know, the first few days you do it, you just sit there playing a drum solo and you get bored and frustrated or you go down there with a drum book and get to page two and you can't face going any further. So yeah, you need to, you need to kind of teach yourself. You need to become your own teacher. And that's where having, being a good problem solver is really one of the best assets. Being determined and being a good problem solver is far more valuable than being talented. I wasn't a talented child, although I could dance and I could, I could play the drums to a degree. I didn't really get a reality check till I was about 13. And, you know, in my local town, everyone thought I was great. I was some genius and I was, you know, best drummer in the world. And then when I was about 13, my dad took me to um, a thing called the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And this is an orchestra which is all uh, teenagers, and they really are the best in the country. And I went along there feeling pretty good, and I sat behind the kid who was two years older than me. He was 15. And he was just like from another planet. I'd never seen a level of playing like that. You know, they played a song in 11 8. And I looked at the chart and I thought, what does that say? <laughs> 11 8. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I, I didn't even know what that meant. And he sight read it. Wow. I, I just sat there with my mouth open, like, oh my God, this is a real big reality check for me. I hadn't really had it up to that point. Um, and it's good to have those points. But I think if I was eight, nine, 10, 11 years old now, and every time I turned on YouTube, there's some kid from the other side of the world who's half my age playing 10 times better, I might get discouraged by that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see any of that really when I was, when I was a kid. Maybe that's a good thing. Right. Well, that's what I was wondering. Is it a, is it a blessing or a curse to have all of this, this technology? And, you know, it's great that you can go on and, and watch a video of Max Roach, but it, it's also, you know, you see people where they're playing and they're athletes at this point and they're just monsters behind the kit. And you're like, how am I ever, I can, I'm never even going to be able to do that physically. I just, there's just some things I can't do. Like I can't dunk a basketball. I probably can't play singles at 350 BPMs, you know? Right. So how, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we're swamped with choice, too Mm -hmm. much choice. I mean, there's billions of, of drumming videos on YouTube. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to stop. Um, I see lots of guys with amazing chops, um, but I don't very often like what they're doing. I don't like what they're saying artistically on the instrument. And quite often they have a quite nasty drum sound to go with it. Um, <laughs> I, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm not anti-speed. But I don't think in those terms. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think if you spend all day trying to play sixteens at three hundred beats per minute, when you're in a band situation and someone plays you a new song, what you're thinking is, 
how many sixteenths could I get into this tempo? <laughs> or you start you start hearing things with lots of notes in. I don't really hear when I hear when someone says, "Okay, could you play a fill at this point?" and I listen to the music, and the kind of fills that come into my head are very rarely fast ones. Mm-hmm. I don't really think I don't hear fast drumming in my head when I'm being creative. Um, because I don't sit there all day practicing fast running. Mm-hmm. It's it's not part of my vocabulary. You know, I, I think you. As I'm getting older, I'm realizing the most important thing is to express what you're trying to say. Right. It doesn't matter if what you're writing is with a five thousand dollar pen on the most incredible handmade paper with you know, gold leaf heading and you write down loads and loads of words. It doesn't mean anything. I'd rather see something scrawled on pencil on a piece of toilet paper. If those words resonated with me. Right. Right. And sometimes I see drummers with, you know, very little traditional technique and they play something that I really like. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think if you've got a lot of technique, a lot of speedy chops, <clears throat> you just can't help using them or trying to fit them in to right. the music. And um, I, I haven't really got speedy chops. I don't hear that. I don't even want to practice getting my speed up because it, it, I don't hear it when I'm, when I'm imagining a drum part. That's not what's coming into my ears. It's time to design your dream kit. You have a sound and look in your mind's eye, and it's time to make that dream a reality. Your sound emerges from the choicest materials and is constructed using the exclusive Sonar Optimum shell measurement construction, utilizing slightly undersized shell diameters, allowing the drum head the space to float freely with unrestricted bearing edge contact. Your look emerges through the ultimate selection of veneers, hand-polished lacquers, and premium coverings to create the stunning look of your dreams. Design yours today at sq2-drumsystem.com. The Evan Snare Tune-Up Kit provides everything you need to maintain the most essential piece of your drum set. This recently launched kit comes with either UV1 or Caftone heads as the centerpiece, along with an Evans branded microfiber cloth, a drum key, lug lube, hardware polish, Barney's Beats branded Promark Rebound 5A drumsticks, a snare side 300 drum head, and a two pack sampler of the new Evans EQ pods. It's everything you need by the drum. The UV kit is ideal for rock, metal, and funk, providing sonic versatility and long lasting durability. While the Caftone kit is ideal for jazz, providing a classic, warm, full, rich tone. Evans Drumheads, the most technologically advanced drumheads on earth. I mean, you made the comparison of writing, and to me it's almost like learning all of these huge words that you just you don't really know how to use in context and you're just writing them on a, on a page. 
that don't really make and they don't really make any sense. Yeah. But I and I think that it's all it's an intangible of of trying to learn how to play musically and and learning musicality. Uh, I think that's a hard thing because it's easy to look at a piece of paper and learn how to play a paradiddle. It's not yeah. you can't look at a piece of paper and say, "Oh, that's how you play with feel and soul and and musicality." And you know, I I don't know the best advice of how to get there. Do you have any tips or pointers on that? Well, just listening to other drummers play. And I think throughout your life, you you hear little bits of drummers and you think, oh, I really like that. And, and you kind of steal little bits from lots of people. And likewise, you hear lots of things that you don't like and you think, I must remember never to do that. <laughs> um you know, I, 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 when we used to do a lot, Porcupine Tree used to do a lot of um, festivals. I would walk around backstage and there'd be like six or seven drum kits set up for the different bands. And I'd look at the drum sets and think, some of the drum sets, I think, wow, I bet this guy can't play. I can just see by the way he set his drums up, this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> and it quite often was. And so I would, you know, stand in the wings <laughs> and watch drummers play. It was it was great because you don't often get that chance, right, to be backstage and you know see the real mechanics of how they're doing it, right. It's 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 an interesting learning experience watching other people mm -hmm. play. In the last five years, I've done a lot of um, recording masterclasses. I do a masterclass, a three-hour masterclass with 12 students, maximum 12 students, and I show them some things on a pad and everyone tries to play it. And then I play a very easy song whilst the other 12 guys are in the control room and one at a time they come out and they all play the same song on the same drum set. And it's very interesting to me. I, I learn a lot from watching, you know, 12 guys play the same song on the same drum set and afterwards, we all go in the control room and we carefully listen to each performance. It's interesting how different. I'm sure. Even the tonal qualities have to be different. Yeah, we leave the mix exactly the same. We never move the faders. Right. And yeah, it's very interesting. I think probably for them too, because how many situations are you in like that? It's very rare that you'd be in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. So even no matter if you're a good drummer or a bad drummer or wherever you, you are in, your, in the state of your progression, to watch 12 other drummers all play the same song on the same set and hear how they play, how they play their time, where they place the beats, where they think is a good time to put a fill in or how busy or simple or tasteful or not any of that may be. It's it's quite an education to just it's an educational experiment, shall we say? Mm -hmm. And I've done it. I think I've seen I've had about five hundred people now. I've done it in several countries, and I've had about five hundred students all come to this class, do the the lesson on the pad, play the song, and it's uh it's interesting. I was interested to see if there was a difference from country to country. Um, they're people of all ages, and uh, I learn a lot from it just from watching uh, all these guys play. Sure, it's got to be interesting to see, you know, see how the uh, everyone sounds differently, and and just 
you know, just hearing the the different qualities of what's going on and how everybody's playing it, how they're approaching it, how they're phrasing it, all of that has got to be a really interesting thing. Yeah. Do you, do you still do these? Yep. Yeah. I, I did one in Norway about a month ago. Oh, okay. I mean, normally I do two in one day. So 12 students in the morning, 12 students in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting. So two other questions. I want to be cognizant of your time, but uh, one, I remember seeing you on the, on the Dave Letterman, I guess they had like the drum solo week uh, that they have every year. So how did that whole thing come about and how do you prepare for something like that? Uh, you mean, how did I get asked? Yeah. I got asked. Not that I'm saying you shouldn't have been asked. I'm just curious how, uh, how that whole thing happened. Yeah. Well, me too. I mean, I could have thought of hundreds of drummers, you know, more well-known, more worthy to do it. It was as big a surprise to me as anyone else. It actually came about, again, by complete accident. Paul Schaefer, the keyboard player MD of Dave mm-hmm. Letton's show, his son is studying drums. And um, he went to pick his son up from a drum lesson, and he asked the guy, he said to the guy, hey, you know, we're doing the drum week again on Dave Letterman's show. You got anyone you'd recommend? And uh, he said, yeah, I'm a big fan of this band called Porcupine Tree. I really like the drummer. So <laughs> it was as simple as that. And then Paul found my manager, and next thing is I got a call. You know, it was about a month's notice to go there and do it. That's amazing. That's a hell of a story, though. Just now everybody's going to be trying to track down this uh, this drum teacher and pay him off so we can talk about so they could talk to Paul Schaefer to get on the show. Well, it, the show's finished now, but... <laughs> no, uh, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it, it wasn't a popularity contest. It wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't sort of reader's poll or something. It was just totally random. Right. Oh, there was, you could name a hundred drummers that I would have thought, yeah, well, they're definitely going to do it before, I, before I'd even be considered. That's amazing, though. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, touching on you had mentioned about about teaching and things like that. Do you teach privately, or do you do you stick with uh, most of the master class type settings? No, I don't have any students at all. No, no. I get Just... asked a lot, and um, it's not something I want to do right now. Um, I don't think I'd be the ideal teacher. I think you need to be someone. Well, I mean, it depends on the student, but it needs to be someone who is there who you could come to regularly and I'm away too much. Mm-hmm. Having said that, one of the, you know, when I had lessons when I was 18 with a, with a guy called Dave Cutler, I only saw him maybe five or six times in three years, but the lessons were so huge. I couldn't really go back the following week because I hadn't absorbed what he'd showed me the first time. Really? So I needed, I needed a lot of time to, to consider and practice what he showed me. Otherwise, it would be a waste of his time. It would be a waste of my money just to keep going back there every week. Right. Because I, I couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to play the first thing he showed me. <laughs> In fact, he said to me, don't come back until you can play it. Right. That's, that's, uh, I think once you get to a certain point, you sort of need lessons like that that aren't, you know, aren't, Okay, do exercise one and come back, and then we'll do exercise two. But you need more broad stroke, conceptual type yeah. of things to say, okay, you know, work on this for the next three years and come see me. Right. 
So for anyone interested about everything that you have going on, they can go to GavinHarrison.com. Uh, also, is there anything in particular that you have going on right now that you want to let the people know about? Actually, it's GavHarrison.com. It is <laughs> Gav Harrison. I'm looking at the website right now, and yeah. I just sort of read it quickly. Someone cybersat my name. Oh. Oh, yeah. Uh, someone, you know, people exist who, I don't know how they get the information, you know, from search engines, you know, about sports players or musicians who are starting to become well known and they immediately register their name.com. Right. And then try and sell it to them for massive profit. Ah. Uh, it happens a lot in the world of football. Right. You know, people come in on lower divisions, lower leagues, and sharp, crafty businessmen, entrepreneurs start signing up their name.com. And the same thing happened to me. I by the time I got round to thinking of a website, I went to GavinHarrison.com and wow, it already exists. And when I got there, it was full of adverts for drums and cymbals, which were pay-click adverts. Wow. So I tried to find out who owns it, and it's almost impossible to find out who the person is. It's very well hidden. It's registered in the Cayman Islands, uh, as many of these things are. And it says you can buy or rent this website. So if you make an offer, it'll say, no, 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 that's... We want at least 10 grand. Oh, my God. Something like that. So, you know, I thought, okay, well, you've cyber sat. You, you really, what, it's, what you're doing is illegal. It's based on fraud. But, you know, that's um, part of the modern world, isn't it? Anyway. Well, I guess that's the reason why all of my, dona- my domain names are, are available. I haven't quite made a name for myself. So everything Nick Ruffini is available. <laughs> well, maybe it's a I snatch it up quickly, of though. Me, of me making it that someone would go to the bother of <laughs> cyber-sitting my name. But anyway, the, 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 yes, I do have a website, gavharrison.com, but probably the best one to catch me on is the Facebook, is the Facebook page. Okay. And all, I update the most. Okay. So uh, I will link to that in the show notes as well so that to make sure that everybody can can reach out and thank you for doing this interview and say hello and whatever else they would like to do. Uh, but I would like to personally thank you for for getting this together. Also, I want to thank Rob from Hudson Music for, for connecting us. And uh, it has been a, a long time... Uh, dream of mine to get you on the show so i am glad that you are here and i just want to say i appreciate you for taking the time to chat no problem and uh we'll talk to you soon okay thanks nick gavin thank you so much okay bye There you have it, the one, the only Mr. Gavin Harrison. You can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 660. Also, if you dig the podcast, do me a favor, leave a rating or a review. You can do that on iTunes. I talk about it all the time and it would really mean a lot to me. So if you could take a minute, two minutes, just go to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review. Super simple takes uh not much time at all but other than that that's all i got so i hope you enjoyed this thank you so much for listening and until the next podcast keep drumming and i'll be talking to you soon peace drummer's resource is produced by revoice media executive producer nick ruffini that's me 
edited by Justin Thomas, video editing by Tomas Shannon, and graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.